So a lot of the value add that we were looking at, like the thesis back then was we're buying well below replacement cost, right? So for example, this wasn't me specifically, but it was my my uh, uh, father-in-law's company. We we helped them buy 750 units plus or minus down in Texas. And we could buy a class multifamily for 83 to call it 90 a door. And I just looked at what was happening in Alberta and I thought, you know, we're buying 1960, 1970 product for roughly the same price. You are listening to the Savvy Real Estate Investor Show, the podcast dedicated to empowering you to invest for your family's future. Listen in to learn about different strategies successful investors use to live their best lives. Whether you are starting out on your real estate wealth building journey or a seasoned investor looking for the next unfair advantage, this is the show for you. Each conversation will help you be more savvy when it comes to understanding how to leverage real estate to achieve your goals and live an extraordinary life. Your host is none other than seasoned investors and power couple, Jose and Khadija Jafferji, founders of the Savvy Real Estate Group, where we have been helping passive investors grow their wealth and getting them one step closer to financial freedom since 2008. Hey, fellow savvy real estate investors, we have Shane Molanson on our show today. And I've known Shane personally for several years, and he's just a great guy who is a wealth of knowledge on commercial real estate investing, finding and vetting large deals, raising capitals, and all kinds of development from retail, industrial, multifamily. He's done so many different types of developments. And uh, most importantly, putting the right team in place to execute his business plan. Shane's story started like most real estate investors, because at the beginning, he was buying single family and duplex properties. But he quickly realized that he was equity rich, but cash poor. And he was basically working two jobs, working a day job, and then having to spend a lot of evenings and weekends on all of his small properties. And so at that time, he really decided he was going to pivot into commercial real estate and development, where he has been highly successful in putting together really large syndications and executing massive deals. He's also the coach and author of Club Syndication, which talks about how the wealthy do exactly this, which is to raise money and invest in large commercial real estate deals. So let's get started with Shane. Hey, good morning, Shane. Good to have you on the show. Uh, We're super excited to have this conversation. So we'll let you introduce yourself. Um, Maybe you can tell our viewers a little bit about who you are and where you're located and um, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, what you're working on right now. Sure. So yeah, Shane Melanson in Calgary, Alberta. I've been investing since 2004. Uh, Started like probably a lot of real estate investors in the residential fix and flip. Then I got a job at Sun Life. Uh, doing commercial finance, learned about commercial really on the on the finance side initially, but then I started to see a few of our clients that were not REITs or pension funds doing syndications, right? And what they were essentially doing is they're putting in maybe 10 to 15% of the equity and they would go out and raise the balance of it from high net worth friends and family. I didn't know how to do it at that time, but a couple of years later, I met my wife, my now wife, and uh, her father is a fairly prominent developer in Western Canada. 
They have a publicly traded company that's been around for, I think, going on 100 years now. They have a REIT. And so he kind of brought me into the fold and showed me how to go out and find good commercial properties, generally value add. And now we do a lot of development. And then secondly, how to raise money. So those were kind of the two things that uh, kind of pushed me in. And that was 2008, 2009, when I started to do commercial real estate. So that's kind of a compressed uh, version. And what I'm doing right now is, is primarily developments. Uh, we have townhomes uh, stacked, uh, we have retail, and I've done light industrial. So those are kind of the three areas that I play in. Beautiful. So Shane, tell us why you switched from your thinking about you know being in a single family space for a little while why you thought okay commercial real estate is better uh, was that because of your influence with your uh, father-in-law and just in general what made you switch to commercial yeah i think so i, I was making decent money uh fixing and flipping homes right but i was always on a treadmill and uh one of the things that i kind of figured out not not consciously but i realized after just doing it enough the barriers to entry for residential are very low and so i remember you know getting a ride in the back of a cab and uh you know my cab driver's got four pre-construction condos and my hairdresser is now investing in real estate and i'm starting to think like there's 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 very little like barriers for someone to compete with me on the residential side. And so essentially, if if someone is prepared to pay a little bit more, even if the value is not there, but you know, obviously this is this is going back to 04, 08, the Calgary market was going up, right? And and really you didn't have to be smart uh to make money, right? As long as you were in the game and you owned real estate, it just went up in value. And so there was just a lot of people that were kind of jumping in. And you know, obviously the financial crisis hit. I got uh, hammered pretty hard. I lost money because I was, I was getting into bigger residential. I was starting to build spec homes. And uh, once I started to see what was possible in a commercial property, especially value add, because that's really where we started. So, you know, value add, number one, it's based on like a commercial property is based on income. So all I had to do is find properties that had low rents or vacancy. Those are the two things that I really focused on. And if I could find something that was maybe 20% vacant or 10 or 20% under market, I could double the value, or at least I could double my equity in a short amount of time. And so once I started to see how people were playing this game, making seven and eight figures, right? Because I was, when, the transition, I actually became a broker as well. And uh, we helped some clients, you know, they, they had eight figure profits on uh, like, two and three X on their, on their money in, in a three or four year period. I thought if I'm helping them do that, why don't I help myself do that? And so that was kind of the, you know, uh, just a bunch of realizations and it didn't happen overnight, right? This happened over, over time and I'm still learning, right. In terms of where's the market going, where's the gap, how can I be successful? You and I have had these conversations where multifamily is, not even that difficult for the most part to get into, right? There's a lot of investors that are now buying 10, 12, 20 unit buildings, and that's pushed cap rates down. And you're really having to be creative to make money on those projects. So totally agree. I was going to mention the same thing. It's like, if I look at the Ontario multifamily market, it's like 
like you mentioned, the barrier to entry is very low now. Uh, people, you know, can get into that, uh, uh, you know, 10, 12, 15 unit building. And those are getting sometimes traded on MLS as well. So anybody can go and buy these properties and that has pushed the price per unit. Cap rates are really low. Price per unit um, uh, really, really high. And nobody's even paying attention to the uh, financials because uh, it's just basically traded on price per unit. So, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, uh, so when you were doing the value add commercial real estate, uh, what did that look like? And, and why have you now switched to development? So a lot of the value add that we were looking at, like the thesis back then was we're buying well below replacement cost, right? So... For example, this wasn't me specifically, but it was my my uh, uh, father-in-law's company. We we helped them buy 750 units plus or minus down in Texas, and we could buy a class multifamily for 83 to call it 90 a door. And I just looked at what was happening in Alberta, and I thought, you know, we're buying 1960, 1970 product for roughly the same price. And I knew you couldn't build it for that, even with land and, and construction costs and labor being a lot less in Texas. So the, the thesis was, let's go down there. You know, they're running at 10% vacancy. The rents were, I mean, it was just, it just blew my mind, like $875, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, for an A-class two-bed uh, in very nice parts of Texas, right? We're talking Sugarland, just south of the Woodlands, uh, in Dallas, North Dallas. So that was kind of the thesis. And a lot of people, I think, probably thought we were a little bit crazy. Uh, I remember in Texas when we bought um, the one uh, A-class, I think it was one of four uh, buildings over $20 million that traded that year in Houston. And for, for perspective, I would say I don't even know how many trade. You probably have a better idea than me, but I would say it's definitely in the billions, right? Um, multiple billions that would transact any in any given year. So in 08, 09, there was very few investors. And so that gave us a competitive advantage because we weren't competing. We didn't go into bid situations. Like when you're the only one at the table, you get to dictate the terms uh, by and large. By 2012, that that was already starting to shift. And so what was happening is there was six people and now you're called for best and final and they're interviewing you. And it was just, it was just a really crappy feeling, to be honest, uh, where you had to sell yourself on why you should be the buyer. And it's only gotten worse, right? I mean, now it's 2021, 2022, and that's just com- like, that's just table stakes, right? Now it's hard money on day one. There's so I, I don't like playing that game. And so I look at like, where do I have a competitive advantage where I don't have to compete with those same metrics? And so there's less people that have this sophistication and know how to do development. Uh, I try to leverage the people, the capital, the knowledge, the you know relationships that I have. And so for us, development is kind of where that, that's been, whether it's on the retail where we have good relationships with tenants, like we don't build on spec. Obviously, if we're doing townhouses or multifamily for rent, you could call that spec, but you ca- you have a pretty good idea, right? When vacancy rates are low, you, you have a 
a general sense that you're going to lease it up. You just don't know how fast and what at what rental rates, but you can predict with within a pretty reasonable uh, expectation. On the commercial side, we always have either pre-sales or pre-leasing. So we're, we try to protect the downside with, with some upside. Yeah, I know. That's great, Shane. And so maybe talk to us a little bit about your model. Uh, we did touch on syndications a little bit. Um, how do you structure your development deals? Yeah, so I try to keep it pretty simple. A lot of the investors that we have are, you know, sophisticated business uh, and professionals, and they've got lots of opportunities to put their money in in various, whether it's a hedge fund or a private equity or their own businesses. And so uh, I would say the past, I don't know, three or four deals that we did, they were like a, an 8% pref, right? So the first 8% we would pay to our investors. And then after that, we generally split anywhere from like a 65-35 to an 80-20. So just depends a little bit on the deal, how much risk has been taken out. Yeah, but that's like, it's, I, I think new investors getting into the world of syndication, they get caught up and trying to do complicated waterfalls. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not... Uh, saying that I would never do that. It's just, if you can't explain to someone in 30 seconds what it is that you're doing and what they get out of the deal, they lose interest very quickly, right? Because like I said, if they're getting pitched often and frequently when I hear someone new trying to pitch a deal, like they're stumbling all over themselves because they, they're they like, well, the first aid is this and I'm going to have a class B share and I'm going to do... And, and I'm just thinking like, like you don't know what you're doing, so how the hell do I know what you're trying to get across? And if if it's this complicated here, I can just imagine your deal is there's probably twelve different assumptions you're you're trying to bake in to to make this thing a success. So, yeah, uh, no, you you had mentioned uh, earlier that uh, you know when you were dealing with pension funds, and they were they were also using a syndication model that uh, maybe the spits were slightly different. No, I want to, maybe I'll, I'll uh, clarify that. What I noticed was most of our clients were REITs and pension funds, and we didn't really know where their money came from, right? I mean, now I know where the money comes from, right? It comes from retail investors that put their money in. So I guess you could call it like a syndication, right? But no one really knows that. Like the teacher's pension fund, they don't really know what their money is doing. I don't think because both my parents are teachers and I, I'm sure I could ask them where their money's invested and they don't know. But what I, what I meant by that was the, there was a couple of private individuals and what they were doing with their, like, I, I remember one, it was probably about a $10 million retail deal and there was some vacancy uh, and they basically came in and it was probably supposed to be like a 20 minute conversation just to kind of give us a high level overview of the deal. But I really was intrigued. And so I would go into these meetings and just ask questions. So it was like two hours long. And um, I wanted to learn from people that were that were really in this in this business, right? I didn't I don't even know if I knew what a syndication was up until that that first meeting. And essentially what they were doing is like I said, they were basically, I think they were putting in maybe 10 to 20% of the equity. So let's say the capital raise was four million bucks. They put in four hundred thousand and then they raised three point six million from you know, maybe five to 10 individuals. And uh, I just found that to be fascinating, right? So then you've got these two individuals as general partners, and then the balance were limited partners. And so the general partners were who we were talking to, right? They were signing off on the guarantees for the debt. 
and they were responsible for finding the deal and they got a promote for putting it together, right? An acquisition fee. And so I was just, I don't remember how their deal was structured, uh, quite frankly, but I, I, would, I would imagine it was probably in that 75, 25, 8% pref. And, um, you know, I think they turned that building into, well, I saw it later on. I think it transacted at 18 or 19 million, not, you know, maybe five to seven years later. So they did well, right? And those two individuals have since gone on and they're, they're a major player. They are now partnered with institutional money uh, as well as they'll still kind of go to friends and family, you know, but they'll just take a smaller chunk. So when you go into like 50, 100, $250 million deals, it gets tricky to just go to retail investors. So they'll basically probably still pool 10 to 20% of their chunk. So let's say they need 20 million. Maybe they put in or maybe it's whatever the numbers are, but you can start to see like, as soon as you start getting into that 20 million plus, you're probably having institutional partners. Yeah. No, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned all this because the the word syndication uh, or the LPGP structure is something that was kind of new to me, uh, you know, just a couple of years ago, because nobody in Ontario, at least that I knew of, uh, was ever talking about it. And uh, until I, I met you and, and, you know, you, you were doing this in Alberta and then I see uh, this is super common in the U.S. This is the, pretty much the only way to structure your deals in the U.S. if you're doing large commercial deals. So, you know, I, uh, there, there's, it's, it is, it's pretty simple to understand, um, like you just mentioned. So, yeah. And Shane, um, you know, maybe we can go back to, to the Alberta topic and uh, you, you're, all, all your deals are in Alberta. How do you navigate the climate in Alberta and, and how does that affect your decisions? Okay, so currently most of my deals are in Alberta. We do have a couple in BC, but I've invested across Canada, right? I've had deals in, in Ontario. I've had, I think the only provinces I haven't invested in would be like Saskatchewan, Manitoba. And Newfoundland, but uh, but currently I'm trying to simplify my life. I don't like to travel as much, and one of my philosophies is investing in your backyard or where you have a competitive advantage. And so I'm trying to invest as close to home where I have relationships, where I have local intel. Like I can look at a retail property or industrial or multifamily. And within a pretty narrow bandwidth, I can predict what the rents are, likely what the vacancy is. I know the history of the property or the area. But if I go into Toronto or Hamilton or Vancouver or you know Montreal, it doesn't matter, even in the US, I don't have that same level of, of knowledge. And so it takes me a lot longer. And so I don't know wh what a good deal is from a bad deal because I'm starting from scratch. I have, I have a sense. I'm like, yeah, that looks like a great opportunity. And I'll be driving around and maybe if I'm with a broker, they might say, yeah, no, that, that'd be a great opportunity. But I don't know if they're telling me the truth or they just want to make a sale. And so now I have to figure out like, who can I trust and who do I have to be careful of? And that takes more time. And so like the friction of me going into a new market just accelerates, right? So, you know, Jose, like when you went into Atlanta, I suspect it took you some time to really understand that market and you're still learning it, but you're, you're getting really good. I would imagine you you know, the pockets to stay away from and the pockets that you want to invest in. 
Like that's what we did in Houston. It, but it took time. Like it took, I don't know, probably well into 18 months before I felt like I really understood it. And I still don't know it as well as someone that's been there for 20 years. So, so that is on the macro level. So specifically in Calgary, yeah, I would say that right now there's uh, areas that I want to invest in. There's places that I would really like to pick up properties. And so when I'm having conversations with uh, brokers or sellers directly, I, I kind of guide them, right? I, 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 I'm a deal junkie, so I want to see everything. But at the same time, I, I want to you know, get them more focused so I can say, this is where I'd like to be. This is the size, right? Two to 20 million. Uh, I'll do value add, but it's got to be a real value add. It can't be uh, something that you're making up you know, on the fly. And we like to do development. So the land's got to be X. I don't mind rezoning, but I'm going to need time. So people have a pretty good idea when they show me a deal that I'll give them a, a quick answer. That's what people appreciate. And, um, and I believe in the Alberta market. I've been investing all the way through. And now I think the market is rebounding. But we'll see. Did that answer? I wasn't sure if that answered your question. Yeah, no, that was actually a good answer. I mean, I think that there's definitely benefits um, of investing in your backyard. And I think that Alberta is a great market in a lot of ways because of, um, you know, it's similarity to the United States and some of the ways that they govern. Yeah. And also that I think it's kind of, you know, it has been underrated for a while um, in comparison to some of the other provinces. So now it's kind of making a big comeback because I, I know personally a couple of investors uh, from Ontario are heavily now going into Edmonton um, to pick up properties because they see a, they see it as a great bang for your buck, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm not um, discrediting investing far from home. It's just that I think the way that a lot of investors start off is they don't take the time to travel and meet people in person. And obviously with COVID, that was challenging. But now I don't think those same reasons or excuses hold. And so I would say that if a person is going to, let's say, okay, I want to be in Alberta. Okay, well, take take a trip out, drive around, spend five days. And one thing is you will get your the broker's attention very quickly because unlike me who lives here, it's nothing for me to drive around with a with an agent. But if you have to fly and get a hotel and a rental car and you know, you're away from your family or whoever it is. Like you're making a real commitment, and uh, and I would say that by and large brokers will take that very seriously, and they'll know um, that that you're committed to it. The other part is, and I'm sure you saw this, Jose, is that when you go into those markets, one of the first questions is like, if you make an offer on a property, like, have you seen it? Have you toured it? Uh, sellers are quite reluctant to put a property under contract based on a brochure. And rightfully so. So that's that's another, I guess, reason. So for me, it's easy. I jump in my car, I go look at it. If you're out of state or out of province, then uh, that's not as easy, but I would say it's important. Oh, 100%. Yeah, actually, this happened to us uh, on our last deal is that the broker asked us, um, when are you doing the property? Because we we were we wanted were wanting to preempt a, uh, a deal, and he's like, "Have you toured the property?" So we he actually waited until we toured the property, and then he um, you know worked with us uh, uh, on getting an LOI accepted. 
Now, maybe tell us about, you know, um, what's kind of a couple of tips to build relationship with your investors? Because uh, that's obviously a crucial part of your growth. So I would say that th- there's a couple of things. First is having some sort of an investing philosophy, I think is important. And like, what are your values? What do you believe? And I know it sounds a little soft, if you will, but people are really investing in you first, right? They're betting on you, the individual. And so if you show up late or if you show up on time, if you show up ready to go, if you show up and you understand your numbers and, you know, one of the kind of best things that I've done is, and I don't think that this is um, necessary for everyone, certainly, because I raised well in excess of 20 million just without a, a podcast or a book or anything to that effect. But I can tell you once you go through the process of writing a book or creating a podcast or videos or what what have you, writing blog posts, articles, it forces you to figure out what it is that you believe. And initially your voice is probably going to be, you know, jumbled up and it's not going to make a lot of sense to people. But better to to practice that early. And so after a certain amount of time, once you start having those conversations with investors, you can speak very clearly in terms of like what it is that you are focused on, areas, location, your strategy, how you find deals. Because let's face it, investors nowadays are, they're very discerning, at least from what everybody I've dealt with, meaning they don't want to hear how you found a property and competed with 12 other investors and um, you happen to be the high bid, right? I mean, that obviously does work in some cases, but I can tell you the type of investors that I'm dealing with, like they want to know, okay, you know, we found the property off market or we got a first look or we have some sort of intel because this tenant wants to be here and we've like... You're, you're selling people and it's generally through some sort of a story. And so then like that gets them intrigued. And then secondly, it's like, okay, now I'm intrigued, but do you understand your numbers? And I can rattle off pretty much all the deals that I'm working on right now in terms of what's my cost, how much equity, what's my cash on cash return. You know, I don't really get into the IRRs as much, but I usually have them memorized just because it's harder to do that calculation. And so now you're giving your investors confidence, right? So you've got them intrigued. You're giving them confidence that you know what you're doing. And then track record, uh, you can't be, you can't just brush that under and, and kind of like when I started, I didn't have a track record. So I either had to leverage off other people. And then when I was doing it completely on my own, I had to really like, <laughs> I had to take a, a hit, right? I, I couldn't charge the the fees that I do now. I couldn't get the splits that I used to. Um, I had to kind of put my ego aside, if you will, and really earn and deliver, right? This has been 14 years of, of doing this in the making right now. And, uh, you know, I've got partners that come into my deals uh, where they might find the deal and I'll raise the capital and I'll explain to them, like, I, I, re- I had a re- recent conversation on this, like, if you know if you want to go out and raise money and do it yourself that's totally up to you here's the playbook right but you can't buy that track record or credibility without giving something up in exchange and so i think it's important for people to understand that and realize that there's there's a lot of value 
to to a track record. Yeah, I know. And exactly what you said, a, a lot of great points, but specifically that people are investing in you first and foremost, um, which is, you know, I think sometimes people get so caught up with, uh, you know, the numbers and and having those 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 decks, right? Like the PowerPoint presentations or the decks or... And, and I mean, it's all great. Like investors want to know, but investors also oftentimes don't really understand a lot of it, nor do they want to or need to, right? They they just want to know some simple things that are going to build confidence and and make them want to to basically feel comfortable enough to go ahead. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> like I will say that I would... I know this from from one conversation in particular where I was pitching a gentleman and uh, he said, okay, ask me a couple of questions. And I was kind of thinking like, hmm, I, wonder, I don't know why he asked me those questions. I realized that he didn't even look at the deck. He didn't even look at the cover page. He was like basically investing purely on who I was, right? And he was going to come in for, I think that it was either three or 500,000. And so that just goes to show, like, I'm not saying that that's the majority. Obviously, a lot of, I would say, all my investors go through the deck, right? And some of them will take 90 minutes to go through it with me on the phone. Other times, um, it's a text message. And and I basically say, here's the deal. Here's the numbers. Let's jump on a phone call. Sure, I'm in for this. We can go through it, you know, later. And But that that that's the relationship and the trust, right? And so that trust is built over time. And yeah, to your point, it's like how it's delivered, right? Because let's face it, you can put whatever you want in a pitch deck and um, or an investor presentation. There's a bunch of assumptions that are baked into it and you can pick it apart. But at the end of the day, the investors that I'm dealing with, they know that there's they're really betting on the individual. And if this deal goes sideways... Are you going to stick it through and are you going to protect my money? And that's why I guess the thing that we didn't talk about is skin in the game. Like having your own uh, skin in the game is important because then it shows alignment for both parties, right? I've, I've got a lot to lose. You have obviously some to lose. So this has got to be a success. Yeah, I, I wanted to transition into uh, talking about the current market, uh, you know, especially how the debt markets have changed. We've got interest rate uh, keeps rising. How are you adapting to the change? Uh, especially since, you know, uh, you, what are we finding ourselves is that we, you know, we didn't, we didn't account for this high of a rate and increasing it this fast at a, this fast. So, you know, um, it's changing every day and, and there's a lot of uh, uncertainty with investors, with the markets, uh, how are you adapting to all of that? Well, I mean, there's no um, silver bullet. I don't think anyone has the answer. I had just got off a call with our mortgage broker on our 63 unit townhouse development that we're doing. And we were discussing like, okay, what does this look like if we forward fix rates? Right. Meaning if we want to hedge out and we want to lock in our takeout financing 18 months from now, what's what does that look like? And what are treasuries saying and what are some what are some of the big players doing? So I think that that's part of this is to talk to other people in whatever uh, circles you're running with and try to get unbiased opinions. Right. Because. If you're talking to someone else that's doing their own deals and just hearing what it is that they're doing, I think that that's important, right? And I would try to find people that are doing it at a high level, right? I don't know if I'd be going to like the local meetup and, 
you know, that's fine. Right. But you're going to get like 50 different opinions. And that's, I don't know, that, that might just confuse you versus like trying to go to a mortgage broker or a banker that's dealing with like some of the biggest players in Canada and the US and asking like, how are they dealing with this? What are they doing? Why are they doing it? And so for me, that was the conversation I had. And I, I can't tell you that I have a specific answer, but one of the things I, I did prior to our meeting was I said, okay, where are bond rates today, right? So let's say the 10 years at 2.8, where was it uh, back in March? At the beginning of March, it was like 2.1. So it's moved up like 70 bips. When we started underwriting our deal, it was it was um, it, it was kind of bouncing around that like 1.8 to 2.1 since November, and so it's shot up uh, pretty drastically. Obviously, with the Bank of Canada, you know, tacking on I think it was 50 basis points in the past uh, rate increase. So, how is that going to play out? Well, I don't know, but I think on June 9th they have another uh, Bank of Canada will be. T- you know, discussing whether or not they're going to raise rates again. So I'm watching that very closely. And then again, in July, like, what are they going to do in July? So those two will tell me, essentially, are they thinking that a recession is coming or are they, are they still trying to curb inflation? And, uh, you know, and then I looked at what is the impact of interest rates going up by 1%, 2%, whatever, whatever sensitivity you have. And I just, essentially multiply it. So if we have a, for round numbers, say a $15 million loan, what does that look like on an annual basis if the interest rates go up, right? So I want to, I want to quantify it. I want to apply a probability to it. And can I live with that? And if I can't live with it, how do I mitigate it? So those are just some of the ways that I'm thinking about it, but there's no, I don't think anybody knows for certain because there's too many variables. And so I think just researching and, and trying to figure out and then just saying, okay, like here's my tolerance level. And if it gets outside that, what does that mean? Because the other impact is uh, rental rates go up, right? You can't bank on that, but that's at least on the residential side, kind of what we're seeing on my commercial side. It doesn't work like that. I'm locked in for 20 years with some of our tenants and so for me, my only variable is construction costs. Yeah, the, that's which is a, uh, obviously a... Which is another, a whole a, other discussion, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Development is, I, I don't want to, I hope that people aren't coming and listening to this thinking that, oh, maybe I should get into development. Like that is definitely not what I'm suggesting, right? Like development, I'm very fortunate to have tremendous people that help and support I'm really good at finding deals and raising money. I'm getting better at construction and development, but if you know, for the person that's just getting into this, that's you know, that's like a level seven to ten, and just getting into the first commercial property might be like a level four, if you will, or level five. So yeah, exactly. I was just going to mention that you know, development is a very sexy word um, in in real estate, um, and but it is. It is not for the faint of a heart and you need a, a thick skin to go through a development. Yeah, lots of variables, lots of things changing. And, um, you know, you, you have to be able to pivot very quickly in development, I think, compared to some of the other strategies out there. So, yeah, no, it's interesting because uh, even in Ontario, it's become, uh, you know, the t- like the new the new buzzword, right? Everyone wants to do development, infill developments, um, you know, doing all sorts of development work and uh 
you know, speaking from experience, we've done a little bit of development work and uh, we, we realize how challenging it, 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 it is. Oh, for sure. It's, uh, there's a lot of moving parts. I don't think you can do it part time and uh, you're problem solving, right? And so I think some people that, that I've met that want to get into development, they want all the answers and they want certainty and they're just setting themselves up for failure, right? I mean, it's like, you know, it's like there's no, uh, there's lots of courses and, and quote unquote playbooks out there, but I've never had a development go per plan and I've never had the, uh, a project go the same way twice, right? There's always variables. And when you're doing infill, like you might as well times it by two because now you're dealing with neighbors and more, you know, bylaw and, and the city changes things too, right? Just with fire rating and how they're looking at things. So it's, uh, um, I love it. But you're absolutely right. Like, obviously, when the reward is high, the risk is is generally going to be a little bit higher as well. So, for sure. So, uh, Shane, what's what are you excited about for the next uh, coming, you know, say, two to three years in in real estate? Because I'm running a, a marathon on Sunday. So yeah, I'm yeah, really about yeah. I like real estate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I'm. I'm definitely excited to keep uh, growing our multifamily arm, if you will, or townhouse developments. Now, is your plan to uh, uh, keep keep those these rental townhomes? That that's our intention. Uh, some of the smaller ones I may sell. Like we have a ten unit right now, inner city, that I quite like, and but I've had some interest actually, funny enough, from people out in the GTA area, and so yeah, like. I, one of my tenants is I don't fall in love with my real estate. So uh, if someone wants to pay me a number that I think is, you know, like one of my mentors, uh, he said, Shane, every morning you wake up, you're, you're buying that property at the number that the market would, would essentially pay you. Right. And so if someone comes to me with a number that I wouldn't buy it at, then I have to look very closely as to whether or not it makes sense for me to sell and I know there's tax implications and and uh, and whatnot, but on the bigger stuff, our plan is to hold it. And you know, I've got three kids, and and I have kind of a vision that one day that either they will take it over or they'll be able to benefit from it. And um, you know, I want to have a substantial uh, portfolio that I can uh, pass on, so to speak. Right. So that's kind of my more like twenty year vision uh, for the next three years. We certainly want to continue to grow and scale doing these kind of like 50 to a hundred units at a time, kind of two to four acres, generally closer to home so that we can kind of manage it. I've recently become a partner in a construction company that does our, our developments. And so that has been going very well and, and very exciting for me. Uh, so those are the really kind of the, the, the two big things on the professional side. And then, you know, personal, just trying to stay, stay healthy and fit and keep up with my kids. Yep. Yeah. The hardest job of all, right? Yeah, exactly. The most important, <laughs> hardest job. <laughs> yeah. Very true. And uh, you've, you've authored a number of books. Uh, tell us a little bit about those. Sure. So one book I, I published, although I don't, I've, I don't think I've ever really quote unquote released it. Uh, and that's just a lot of stories uh, that like personal, professional, family, health, who knows, maybe one day I'll, I'll kind of more publicly release it. But the other one is club syndication, how the wealthy raise capital. 
And that was, it's a short book, uh, but it was, the intent was, I was going for coffee, especially with a lot of commercial real estate brokers and investors. And they were like, how are you raising money? And I kind of told the same story probably 50 times. And I thought, you know, I should just jot this down. So I wrote an article, sent it around and they're like, you know, can you, what about this? What about that? And then, so over time, it just kind of became a short book and um, it, it just uh, it talks probably in more detail than, than what we did today, which is kind of like how I find investors, how I talk to them, how I, you know, pitch or present to them um, just my own uh, psyche in terms of like how I go into those meetings and whatnot. Yeah. And those are, you know, that's my playbook for raising capital. It's pretty straight and to the point. Not, not a lot of fluff, um, but I've had some pretty good feedback from it. And I think people have raised money from it too. So, Yeah, no, I personally read that book, uh, Club Syndication. I got it right off your website. So if anybody yeah, wants to get that book, uh, it's, it's available on your website, shanemalanson.com. Yeah, I, I give I give the PDF away for free. And if they want videos and some other training, then it's like seven bucks or something. So it's... Yeah. The goal is not to, you don't get rich as an author unless you're like Robert Kiyosaki or someone. Uh, and I'm, and I'm no Robert Kiyosaki. So <laughs> for sure. Yeah, no, Shane, uh, it's been a great conversation and, uh, we've, uh, definitely learned a lot from you. Jose has, uh, you know, benefited tremendously from your relationship. And, uh, I think it's really helped us pivot into some thinking bigger, um, doing some bigger deals, uh, expanding our horizons, so to speak. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's been wonderful. I think you've, uh, really had a positive impact on us as well. Well, I, I love hearing that. And, um, I mean, Jose, I know when, when we started, I think one of your, in your intake form, you made, you made a comment that you were going to be the most successful person that I, that I had worked with. Something along those lines. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And and like you recently closed. How big is that deal that you guys did down in Atlanta? Uh, it's nineteen million. Nineteen million. Yeah. And then you've yeah. got another one under contract that's probably pushing up on. Oh, that's that. That's the new one. The uh, the oh. one that we closed on was uh, thirty two million. There you go. Um, yeah. So, uh, fifty mil. Um, that's uh, you know you know when you're. When the student exceeds the uh, the teacher or whatever, that's you know uh, um, <laughs> humbling, and uh, it pushes me too. And that's why I love working with people and just getting to know what they're up to. Because when I see when I see people working at a bigger scale, it it uh, it pushes right. It pushes everyone to just kind of keep thinking like what's possible. So it's great yeah, to see what you guys are Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's the best part of doing these podcasts and, and having people hear stories like yours, because it, it is meant to really just motivate and to, you know, uh, expand people's thinking into what can be possible. And, and really just, you know, it's so true that you are the five people you spend the most time with, like spend time with people who are doing, if, if you're the, if you're the smartest person in the room, then you should change your room. Um, you know, so <laughs> yeah, I, so, I am constantly the low man on the totem pole and the people that I'm around. And so, uh, uh, which is fine, right? Like I, I'll give you a quick example. So I mastermind just one-on-one -on -one with a guy. Uh, he's in the US. I don't want to say his name just for privacy and whatnot, but he's got a, a daily podcast. And in the last 
two and a half years, two years since we met. Um, he's gone from like zero. And I think now he's at 12 or 1400 units. And uh, like, he's just super focused and disciplined, very much like you, Jose. And so I have no doubt that you're gonna, you know, you're on that same trajectory. You know what I mean? And for some people, that's, that's what you want. And other people, that's not what they want, right? Like I, I'm looking at it more on a lifestyle basis and what it is that I'm really kind of focused on. Um, there's no one way to do it, right? I, I think oftentimes we see what other people are doing and we think, oh, that, that's what I want. I chased that for a long time and realized that, you know, while it might look good in a book or uh, it sounds cool at a, at a dinner party, when you're traveling 120 nights a, a year, like I was, you know, and I've got at the time I had two young kids, uh, that was horrible. And so for me, I'm very focused on in and out one day, two days max. And so I know I'm passing up a lot of opportunities, but that's okay. Long, long term, um, I'm going to keep, keep at it. And, and, uh, I enjoy investing in close to home. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Well, yeah, no, thanks again, Shane, for your time and, uh, all the, the great stories you shared. Um, I'm sure our listeners, uh, We'll, we'll definitely enjoy the episode. If they want to reach out, what's the best way for them to, uh, we'll put in our show notes as well. Um, do you have a website? Uh, yeah, my, my website's the best, uh, Shane Melanson, M E L A N S O N.com. Uh, and like Jose said, you can get my book and there's other, um, yeah, there's other places you can kind of connect with me on, but I will say I'm getting less and less on social media. I'm trying to, I still go on there, but um, it's buried on my phone, so it's not easy to, to see. Uh, so kind of once or twice a week, I'll go check and, and, uh, but by and large, just go to my website and, uh, that's the easiest way. Awesome. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks, thanks again, so much. Shane. Thank you guys. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the Savvy Real Estate Investor Show. Make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If you liked this episode, please write a review and share it with us. We are getting the show up and running right now, so every message, every review, and every note counts. This show exists to showcase how investors at any level can start using and leverage real estate to become savvy wealth builders. If you want to learn more about how we can potentially help you create more passive income and build your wealth faster, go to www.savvyrealestateinvestor.com. Once again, it's www.savvyrealestateinvestor.com. All right, that's a wrap. We can't wait to hang out with you on the next episode.